Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, Critic listeners, and welcome to our podcast. This week, our political editor, Graham Stewart, asks Professor Jeremy Black why Britain's armed forces are better trusted to deliver procurement than other state bodies, and whether Britons have always held the armed forces in such high esteem. Graham also talks to John McTernan, former special advisor to Tony Blair, on the contribution Scots have made to the Labour Party, and whether that debt still exists now that the Scottish Labour only has one MP. The armed forces are playing a very clear and important role in the logistics of fighting coronavirus in the United Kingdom, and it's been generally very widely welcomed. Um, But soldiers are not always seen as uh, welcome participants in civil activity uh, on the home front, Uh, not always in all countries and not even always in Britain. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, um, in the 17th century, the importance of limiting a standing army in Britain was so important it it, it was written into the Bill of Rights. What has changed uh, over the last three to four hundred years in in the way in which British people have seen the role of their armed forces in their their civil activities within the UK? Well, I think the first point is that in the 17th century, people had the experience with Charles I and James I of the build-up of the military as a means to avoid parliamentary rule. And with Oliver Cromwell, they had the experience of a military dictatorship. Now, um, after the um, so-called Glorious Revolution, neither of those uh, were the case. There remained groups who, of course, were very unhappy about the military, uh, particularly on the Four Nations principle. Uh, You will find Scottish Highlanders, for example, who were supporters of Jacobitism, or you would find uh, those who wanted a different direction for Ireland, uh, who were disaffected to the use of military force. Um, But I think it's fair to say that um, the experience of the use of the army as an aspect of protecting the Protestant order, uh, the constitution, whether it was fighting uh, foreign foes from sort of Blenheim to Waterloo or fighting against uh, domestic opposition, obviously crushing the Jacobites, uh, created a more benign view of the army. It didn't mean that necessarily people wanted conscription. In fact, the benign view of the army was in part precisely because there wasn't conscription because there were volunteers and it was a volunteer force there was no equivalent of the press gang for the navy now having said that you will be aware that there were communities particularly those in which sort of left-wing radical ideas were strongly entrenched which had a hostile view to the military. The military, after all, was ultimately there for the guarantee, to guarantee civil order, society, property, and the constitution, which means that if you were a chartist radical or you were a uh, demonstrating um, trade unionist in the 19-teens and 20s, you might not have had so favourable a view of the military. And we can take that up more recently. The last major deployment of the British Army domestically prior to 
um, the Iraq War of, 20, of 2003 was, of course, a deployment um, to man ambulances. And, and in, that was precisely necessary because they were dealing with strikers. Um, and ultimately, there is always this degree to which the military is the last resort of a society that is under stress. So at the moment, the point about COVID-19 is that that stress is that um, challenge is not personalized. There aren't people that need to be detained or interned or fought with or whatever. Uh, but there are other civil emergencies where that might well be the case, particularly if policing collapses. Well, you, you raise policing there. And a lot of the criticism that, that's been felt uh, about how uh, things are handled, it, it's been directed at supposedly... Uh, over-officious policing. Is it that really the case that, that the police uh, are, are taking the heat and as such are almost like a shield for the armed forces because the armed forces' role is different uh, and less confrontational with the public? Well, I certainly think the armed forces' role is very different and less confrontational. And, of course, the armed forces are not really at the present moment trained for or habituated to dealing with, shall we say, angry members of the public. Um, the armed forces were obviously used for civil control in Northern Ireland. Uh, they would have been used for civil control in the event of, um, for example, the failure to deal with the um, petrol drivers' strike. Um, so there are, there are domestic provisions for the use of the armed forces, but the armed forces themselves prefer not to be in a situation in which they are having to, to handle difficult members of the public. Um, I think in the case of the police, um, yes, there are uh, obvious difficulties there, and not least that um, the way in which through the, in my view, very foolish idea of the crime commissioners, and I noticed that in the Times there was a report that most chief constables find that crime commissioners are often intervening in rather on behalf of rather uh, foolish and feckless and often personally glorifying uh, short-term political factors. I think the police have been under a lot of pressure in many communities to keep, quote, outsiders out. The fact those outsiders are fellow citizens doesn't seem to have engaged their attention greatly. Um, but no, I think the police are in a difficult role, and I suspect this, the difficulty of this role is going to increase because the nature of... Um, the necessary end to a lockdown is going to be that some people will appreciate the need to end it uh, more than others. Fortunately, we're in a, a situation, certainly at this stage in the lockdown, where overwhelmingly people are accepting it, even if they're not enjoying it or, or, or dislike particular aspects of it. But you, there hasn't been a civil threat to order, either through wide-scale looting or protests. If, if that were to develop in, in a main way, I mean, in the United States, we, we have the, the, the option of the, of the National Guard being called out, and that can be very controversial. Um, is it even foreseeable that the armed forces here might, might be used in, in a scenario like that, or would it always be now left to the police, even if the police were struggling to, to contain the problem? Well, it would always be left to the police in the first instance. I mean, you will know that during the Northern Ireland problems, the uh, Wilson government was extraordinarily reluctant to deploy troops in Northern Ireland. 
and that reluctance is one that is shared by the armed forces. Um, but the fact of the matter is that if policing co- collapses, that there are serious difficulties. Uh, I, I think it's well known that at the time of the riots in London in 2012, those were dealt with by moving large numbers of police officers from elsewhere in the country, um, which is a resource that is possible, just as the great miners' strike in the mid-1980s was in large part dealt with by the same method. But that's largely only possible if, A, you have a reasonable number of police officers, and, B, they are not under pressure elsewhere. So one of the difficulties of this particular epidemic is that it is posing challenges on the resources of the state and of society across the whole breadth of the United Kingdom. The support, which is very widespread across the country for the armed forces, certainly in principle, um, it seems at a higher level now than certainly I can remember at any time in my 50 or so years of life. Is that a perception you would share? And is it related to the fact that our army, our armed forces are now very small and highly professional and uh, therefore do not really intrude on people's lives and consciousness more generally? Well, the armed forces have been highly professional since conscription ended at the uh, beginning of the 1960s. I think that the reputation of the armed forces was compromised on the left by their role in um, uh, um, late imperial policing and uh, counterinsurgency, and then by their role in um, Northern Ireland. After all, it's worth bearing in mind that in December 2019, one of the major political parties went to the electorate led by a man who'd been a bitter critic of the armed forces over Northern Ireland. So, and you know, there are many people of that type still in the Labour Party. So I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say necessarily you have overwhelming support for the armed forces. It depends upon where you're, who you're talking to and which part of the political constituency you're listening to. Within the armed forces themselves, of course, and within the wider defence community, there are also tensions between and within the individual services. And obviously what is happening at the present moment is, as it were, with COVID, the army is having a very good war. Um, whereas, for example, the armed forces, sorry, the air force is not. Um, and you have to be aware that there are bitter uh, struggles over turf, over uh, procurement, uh, more generally over budgets. And although in theory, uh, joint structures have been set up in order to uh, to lessen these. Uh, they haven't worked terribly well, and one of the one of the great problems of the strategic reviews of the twenty teens is that they were not really able to address that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say there's a difference between the sort of the public reputation at the present moment, issue one. The public reputation, if you were to look at all constituencies of the country, after all, go to Northern Ireland and uh, inquire about uh, the view of Catholic nationalists there. Uh, So I think, you know, you have to think about which constituency you're you're talking about, the same vis-a-vis the police, incidentally. And also, if you're looking at the particular questions of how uh, to, to consider the role of the armed forces looking forward. I mean, if you were to say to people... Um, do you support the armed forces? Overwhelming majority would answer yes in a poll. If you were to say to them, do you wish to spend X percentage of the defence budget over the next 10 years 
on, let us say, upgrading the nuclear deterrent, you will find the percentage is smaller. So that, you know, there are, there are, I'm not saying that's a right or a wrong response on their part. I'm just simply observing that one has to look very carefully at the, the bandwidth, to use a modern phrase, of public support. Yes. The size of the armed forces, of course, I mean, it's gone, it goes up and down over the period. I mean, we, we think now that, that the armed forces are a historic low in terms of size. But if you go back to uh, large periods of the 19th century, actually, certainly the, the, the Navy was very large, but, but the army was, was, was small. If you go back to the, 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 the two decades after the, the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, I think the, the, the army was down to about 18,000 men or so. I'm just wondering what the relationship is between the, the size of an army and, and the, the public's perception of it. Well, I think you're right. I mean, in many respects, particularly if you move outside county society or you move outside some traditional recruiting areas um, more generally, I think you you are not necessarily always aware of the armed forces. In Britain, there isn't the tradition of uh, people, you know, officers wandering around in uniform um, around the streets of the country, etc., etc. So it's not a militaristic society and you know occasionally you get newspapers like the guardian uh, claiming that it is but they're just talking rubbish um it's not a militaristic society and the army is relatively modestly sized um given the size of the population i mean you're right to cite a smaller army in the 19th century but then of course there was also the british indian army which was very substantial but linked to that a lot of the armed forces were actually located out Outside Britain and even more outside England, which I think is a is a very important point. Uh, and there weren't major garrison um, garrisons in in London, so that, for example, when they had to or felt they had to respond to the pro, the danger of a Chartist uh, the Chartists in 1848, they had to bring forces into uh, into the capital city. Uh, as indeed they did again for the general strike in 1926. Um, so I think that there is a tradition in Britain, particularly in England, of the army not being particularly prominent. Uh, but on the other hand, until recently, and you know, you could argue that what you've seen with COVID-19 is a second version of the death of Princess Diana, an astonishingly emotional response to a national event or series of events, uh, with one which in some respects is disproportionate. Um, you could argue that until that period of time, the British might have been not so troubled at the idea of the deployment of, uh, of troops in order to maintain civil order. Um, whereas now, I think any use of force, including by police officers quite clearly against people who are a threat to others, um, causes enormous anxiety and sort of produces sort of lawyers on the hyperdrive in pursuit of fame and fortune to get to be able to set up very expensive public inquiries. Now, that would have really surprised somebody in, let us say, 1750. Uh, you know, they, they, read, they were not in favour of militarism then, but, you know, justices of the peace would have read the riot act. 
it had to be a civil uh, authority to do that. And then they would have turned to the officer there and said, do your duty, sir. And the officer would have been responsible for maintaining law and order, which meant shooting people. Um, so I think that uh, one has to be aware that uh, you know, social habits, cultural habits change. We, we, you know, we, we, we have very tolerance in death in some areas, uh, motor traffic accidents, for example, and very intolerant in, of it in others. There's a perception that uh, the, the failings of the uh, British Armed Forces during the First World War have been you know, put down to, to the generals and the, and the high command, but the, the politicians tend not to be, certainly in the popular imagination, put, put in the, the, the frame for that. Uh, but in the two very difficult and very controversial conflicts that the armed forces have been involved in in recent years, in Iraq and Afghanistan, many things have gone wrong there, but it, it, it's the politicians that, that have got the brain rather than the armed forces. Is there a reason for, for this shift of perception of who's to blame when, when things go wrong? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I think it's generally agreed within the system that the senior command in Afghanistan, uh, in t by senior command, I mean the senior command in London, senior command as far as the Afghanistan commitment was concerned, did not adequately assess the risks and that they were desperately keen to find a role for themselves um, in, in in a period of very heavily com, com, you know competition over military resources, um, I mean it, they were very fortunate that uh, they were able to slough off a lot of the uh, of the blame onto the lackluster Mr. Brown, uh, who was you know clearly not up to the job. But I don't think that uh, the, that uh, it was a particularly fair assessment. And there's a number, as, as you will know, there's a number of scholarly works which have analyzed the failure of British command in Afghanistan. I think that's fairly well, well established. As far as the First World War is concerned, the general uh, consensus among military specialists, you can look at it in the works, for example, of Gary Sheffield, uh, Ian Beckett, Tim Travers, my own book on World War One, is that 1918 was one of the greatest triumphs of the British Army of the 20th century. It broke uh, the main German army on the Western Front uh, when the Germans were no longer having to engage large forces um, against a defeated uh, Russia. Um, so there was a marked learning curve of the British Army, and much of that was due to the quality and caliber of its eventual commanders. Um, the trouble is you've got caricature views, and caricature views don't tend to look at the broader picture. I mean, you know, it's the same in the, in the Crimean War. Absolute disasters at the beginning, uh, improvement at the end. Exactly the same in the Boer War. Um, exactly the same, you might point out, in World War II. Um, so there generally is a learning curve. There's a long-established uh, argument, Norman Dixon, Psychology of Military Incompetence, that you promote in peacetime people who look the part, uh, and then you have to get rid of them in wartime and find a different kind of, of leader. And I think that's more generally, incidentally, an aspect that we might talk about in another program, and, I, and possibly your listeners will have views on, that at the present moment, um, we've been encouraging in, in institution after institution, um, leaders who are able to make the right sort of noises about being inclusive and, you know, sort of touchy-feely and all the rest of it, but maybe not people with the caliber to confront difficult decisions and real problems about prioritization. 
Um, but, you know, as far as the military is concerned, um, I think one of the features that's happening in 2020 that makes it really useful is it does have a clear command structure uh, and it does have a sinuous administrative practice and it does have uh, obvious competence in logistics. I mean, there are many other things that classically go wrong. I mean, look at the abysmal record the British have got over military procurement. Um, and, you know, the argument uh, Max Hastings was making it in the Sunday Times uh, last week that institutions are better uh, is really ridiculous. I mean, I would have thought that uh, National Health Service procurement and the National Health Service has an enormous bureaucracy has not emerged very well from uh, from this. But there are some matters in which the armed forces can do very well. And I think at the present moment, uh, logistics is one in which they are definitely have a high competence. And I, I want to end by really reflecting on that issue of why it is the armed forces are so good at logistics. Many of the things that one might say against the uh, the failings of procurement in the Ministry of Defence and the, the Department of Health and Social Care for, for the health sector is, you know, questions of, of overly centralised bureaucracy and so on. Um, how is it that the armed forces, which by their nature have to be uh, uh, quite centralised and quite bureaucratic, how is it that they appear to be very good at logistics? Well, I think, first of all, it's outcome-orientated. It is working 24 hours. It's not being constrained by trade unionism. Um, it's not being particularly constrained by turf wars. Um, and I think it's also experience. All of those are very important. And, of course, there are lots of incompetence that go into the system, as in any other system. But they tend to be rather ruthlessly weeded out in the military. So there, there is a lot that uh, we can learn from the armed forces. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, we, we have to leave it there for this week. But as ever, thank you very much for your historical insight. Keir Hardy, Ramsay MacDonald, John Smith, Gordon Brown, all leaders of the Labour Party, but all Scottish Labour leaders. Now that the Labour Party has only one MP in Scotland, what does the diminishing influence of Scottish Labour mean for the Labour Party nationally? Does it mean anything at all other than having fewer seats, or is there something of the philosophy of Scottish socialism, which is very important for Labour to hold on to. Uh, John McTernan, you were uh, Director of Political Operations for Tony Blair and then uh, an advisor and Chief of Staff to Jim Murphy, the Secretary of State for Scotland and the Scottish Labour leader. Uh, wh wh what is it that, that Scottish Labour brings to the Labour Party nationally? It used to be numbers. Um, and... Those were important numbers, uh, not in the good years, they were important numbers in the bad years. Uh, in 1983, um, Labour were trounced across the country, but stayed above 200 seats, stayed uh, with a base from which they could def def build again, as Neil Kinnock did, because they had so many seats in Scotland and so many seats uh, actually in the northeast and in working class areas of the of the northwest as well so that labor in 83 was thrown back onto its core vote uh, and it required that kind of 
core, uh, irreducible core, to be able to build back again. In the 19, well, the last election uh, in 2019, Labour was again thrust back onto its core vote, and its core vote is now London uh, and middle-class university cities. So, um, and the one seat it, it has in Edinburgh is the most middle-class seat uh, in the whole of Scotland, uh, the seat which is around Edinburgh University. Um, and I think the question that you that you pose uh, in a way is is there something in the scottish labor tradition in ideas or ideology that's significant to labor and i think uh, you should be careful about thinking that ideas have anything to do with the labor party um the labor party is in a way a creation of its main opponent the conservatives the conservatives have always been successful until margaret thatcher by being a very unideological party, and the Labour Party itself is not a socialist party; it's a Labour Party uh, formed by trade unions for trade unions, with lots of leading trade union members within it, and it is it has within it at its heart a pragmatism, uh, which is the pragmatism of trade unions, because unions know there's always a deal, and a deal always means compromise. So Labour has always been. Uh, far less ideological than many of the sister parties uh, in Europe. And uh, what effect will, as you say, Labour's increasingly the, the party of London, what, what effect in, in being a metropolitan party will, will that have on Labour if the working class and trade union dimension in, in, in the traditional labouring classes, if not in the public sector, if, if that has a much diminished role? Well, I think um, there are the, the strength and there's dangers uh, in it. Um, the strength is that the since the mid-1990s, the largest class in number, numerical size in, in, in the UK, has been the, um, the white-collared, monthly-paid uh, workers' salariat, the salariat. They were the they were the voters who were won by Tony Blair. They were the base of the New Labour coalition, um, allied to the declining but still significant working class vote, and allied to some of the regional votes. Um, so that what what Labour has is a growing class. Uh, Britain is increasingly urban. It's increasingly uh, graduates, higher education. You know the the fifty percent target that Labour. Uh, effectively set for participation in higher education as that as, as you know as the years move on gradually you go from a situation in the in the post-war early post-war era where only about five percent of the population had a university degree you're getting up to 30 percent uh and rising and in one way education uh, uh is a is is one of the most substantial cleavages now uh in politics um and it was there in it was there uh in the brexit vote and it's um it was there in the the vote for um for Boris Johnson in, in the last election um is this an example uh of what happened in America where the democrats and the republicans basically swapped electorates in the 60s uh the the, the southern white vote went to nixon and stayed stayed with them uh and the the northern and california the northeastern vote around new york and the West Coast vote around California, and the uh, ethnic ethnic vote uh, went to the Democrats. 
there is something fundamental shifting in the nature of the support in um, uh, to, to, to political parties in the UK. And Labour does need to get um, a wider coalition than simply the metropolitan uh, uh, middle classes, um, but it needs to find ways to align the interests of those workers, uh, middle class workers, because they are you know, the salaried workers, with um, the traditional working class voters. Uh, and that is the, that's the key battleground uh, for the next election, if we can even start to think about what a political battleground might be like while we're still in the middle of the pandemic. And of course, many of those traditional working class voters are, are in Scotland. Uh, I mean, I, I remember growing up in Scotland in the 1970s and 80s when uh, you know, the city councils in Glasgow and Dundee were rock solid Labour run councils. Uh, and, and now they've gone uh, Scottish nationalist, uh, as has the, the Westminster representation in Scotland. Currently, amazingly, only one Labour MP, when in, in 97 they, they had 56. Um, how, how are these votes going to be? One back, particularly in Scotland. I mean, did, did this SNP steal Labour's clothes and, and dress it up with, with a bit more tartan? Or, or actually, is the Labour offering uh, distinctly different on policy from the SNP, as well as obviously being unionist rather than nationalist? The SNP surge in Scotland um, bears a lot of resemblance to um, Boris Johnson's, if you think about it. That the they had, there was a referendum. Um, in that referendum, Alex Hammond and the SNP lost, but they took the emblematic issue um, of the NHS and they said you'd keep the NHS if the country was independent. They took the emblematic issue of currency and they said you'd keep the pound. Uh, they didn't, even though they want to be, they want an independent Scotland to be part of the European Union. They don't want to join the euro. Um, one of their weakest weakest assertions, but they said they said you know the emblem of the NHS and the emblem of the pound would be held uh, on by Scotland. They understand the emotional appeal of those. Uh, I'm pretty sure Dominic Cummings spotted that uh, and took uh, lifted that straight into the um, uh, into the, the the referendum campaign for the Brexit referendum campaign, where um, the NHS was at heart uh, of Britishness heart of the identity, heart of the the future identity of Britain, as well as a tie to the past traditional identity. So there are there are similarities, and the big and the deepest similarity is, I think, this: a referendum is a massive disruption of traditional politics because it it creates a division which is not which is not traditionally left or right. It creates a, tra- a division which is not traditional classes class based one. Or it, it creates a division. And having chosen to define yourself, as it happened in Scotland, to be yes or no on the issue of independence, it's a very big, it's a very big thing to step back and go, well, I'll still vote for the Labour Party. That, I think, was the Labour Party problem. That the, It's not that Labour has, has only one MP. The country is still um, split between... Um, evenly split with a majority still against independence but while there's one party that stands for Westminster 
on the ticket of being pro-independence. And there are three, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats and the, uh, and the SNP, uh, sorry, the, the Scottish Conservatives, who divide the, the, the no vote, the pro-UK vote, in a first-past-the-post system, um, if, you, if, you get four, if you get 45% of the vote and three other people divide 55 between them, um, you're going to win most of the seats. And so it's proven. So the, the SNP position is overstated in the numbers they get in Westminster. Uh, they're really broadly, in Westminster vote terms, on the same kinds of votes as Labour got um, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And actually they're still below what the Scottish Conservatives used to get in the 50s in Scotland. So I think the, the issue about politics in, in Scotland is, at every stage, the dominant party in Scottish politics believed that it was the end of history. In the 1950s, the Tories would not have believed that this was going to become a, a country that was so Labour-dominated. The Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party had a coalition which had a huge Unionist working-class vote, to ally to a very traditional middle-class vote. Um, and even in their worst elections, they were, it's hard to push them below 25 or 20%. Uh, so there's still a really substantial conservative vote there. It's that they lost the working classes who went from being unionist and therefore anti-Labour, because Labour was the party of the Irish and Republican uh, minority. And they and those as those workers became... Uh, trade unionists, they stopped being conservative and unionists. And that ebbing tide moved to Labour, and Labour became the dominant party of Scottish politics. And now Labour has been in its turn replaced by the SNP, who desperately tried to keep the politics of the country all about independence. You see it playing out in the coronavirus discussion. If you read, which nobody, no journalist apparently has, Nicola Sturgeon's um, uh, publication yesterday about the plan for leaving COVID, leaving lockdown, um, all it is is a very lengthy exposition of, of the UK government's five tests. Um, I heard Matt Hancock on the radio and the BBC this, uh, getting very angry when he's asked about Nicola Sturgeon's plan. He said, there's not a plan. There's no detail. And there isn't. There are no metrics. There's no, there's no dates. There's no time set. Um, but Nicola Sturgeon has successfully managed to find coronavirus, an issue on which she's differentiating herself from uh, the, the UK. But it's a potential weakness for her because her health minister was on the Today programme this morning, BBC's Today programme. And she kept answering every single question, saying, we'll do what's right for the people of Scotland. We have a responsibility for the people of Scotland, which is the way they try to create a, a differential identity. Uh, the interviewer said... And Andy Burnham doesn't want regional or national differentiation in emerging lockdown because we live in such a small country packed in together. Uh, do you think that you have responsibilities to the people of the Northwest? And the health minister said, we have a responsibility to the Scottish people. And that is, un in the end, the fatal flaw of the SNP because they cannot see an identity in which they say it would have been felt weakness by the health minister, Jean Freeman, had she said, yes. Uh, the virus doesn't respect borders because her politics is about the border. She can't actually conceptualise that answer. She can't utter that answer. And the answer for the Labour Party is not to wait for the wheel to turn round. Um, it is to exploit the fact that the SNP do believe that they are the end of history. As the dominant party, they will always be the dominant party. Um, 
And their issue, independence, is the only issue that matters. What they've done by lashing themselves to independence is they have let educational standards slip in Scotland uh, appallingly. They have, uh, they've, they've, they've nationalised by abolishing all the, um, uh, the regional police forces, nationalised the police force to, Scot- to, to make one police force, which has itself not uh, been able to function as well as the, independ- the, the individual police force had before. They have neglected uh, health. Uh, they've 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 opened a new uh, sick kids hospital in Edinburgh, a building which is so sick they can't let any children into it because it's so badly designed, because they because they decided they'd finance everything uh, from public debt and not from using the PFI and using and transferring the risks and the costs of badly designed buildings to the people who design them and build them. So there are areas where the 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 SNP's weakness in the end is like everybody else. Um, Nobody defies the laws of political gravity forever. If you've been around for 10 years, you've been around for 20 years, eventually people just go, we need a change. So Labour needs to be plausibly the change, and it hasn't been that since... um, It hasn't been that really uh, since Donald Dewar was the leader, and it needs to say what that change is about and make that change align itself to the absolute fabric of people's lives. Uh, A better health service, a better transport... Uh, better education, and to not have, uh, and to and to pull the SNP into the debate on the details of what they're doing, which is where Ruth Davidson, as a leader, made the connection with the Scottish Conservatives. She was a normal person, spoke, you know, everybody would look at her and go, you know what, uh, I wouldn't mind having a drink with her. And they'd know that, you know, you'd spend an evening with her and you, you'd split a bottle of wine between you and you'd probably split two bottles of wine between you and you'd have a very good evening and you'd I'd really like that. How many people would want would have wanted ever to have gone to Alec to for a drink with Alex Salmond? He just talk at you all night. Um, you've got to have that human connection. You've got to have the policy connection, and in that you need somebody who looks and feels uh, that's got a connection. And so, the Labour future uh, in Scotland is probably Anna Sarwar, um, who uh, is you know what's he doing during COVID? not complaining about the government, either the UK government or the Scottish government, even though he's a political opponent. He's set, up a, he's set up a charity. He's driving that. So it's that kind of thing where, you know, positioning yourself to make connections, positioning yourself to understand and listen to people. Um, and in the end, the show under Salmond uh, was really about Salmond, but he had a deputy, Nicola Sturgeon. The show under Sturgeon is Sturgeon. She has no deputies. She has no people she trusts to be close with her. And you can't, in the end, be a one-politician party, even in a country as small as Scotland. I think one of the things that's very interesting uh, uh, listening to you is how much devolution has succeeded in changing the framework of the debate. You're talking very much in terms of Scottish politicians in Scottish politics and and not at Westminster. We have a a new leader, a national leader in Keir Starmer, named after the great Scottish Labour leader Keir Hardy. Um, For Scottish Labour salvation, does it need to look to itself and and its own uh, leadership cadre or, or can it, or should it, be, be saved from down south? Um, look, in the, in the end, it's going to be a combination of both. One of the most successful things um, uh, that the, the SNP ever did was they tried to say that the UK Labour Party were illegitimate and Scottish Labour should only be 
the you know Scottish Labour. Um, it is the strength of the Labour movement that is a UK-wide Labour movement. The unions are UK-wide. The party is, is UK-wide. It can bring talent to Scotland. In fact, you know, the UK government is responsible for social security. So therefore, what Keir Hardy says and thinks about universal credit is really relevant. The UK government um, uh, is responsible for defence. Defence is significant for Scotland uh, in many ways. Modern advanced manufacturing in the defence industries is major in Scotland. It's an embarrassment to the SNP, but it's a huge strength for Scotland. Um, the deterrent uh, is based in Scotland. And while the SNP are very strongly opposed to the nuclear deterrent, they normally campaign against Trident itself in principle. They never actually campaign on the issue of should Britain and Scotland be protected by the deterrent. Because Scotland is like England. Scotland's like Wales. Scotland's like Northern Ireland. If you ask people, should we give up our nuclear weapons while others, and potentially bad actors, have nuclear weapons, they go, no, that's ridiculous. People in Britain and Scotland believe in, in multilateral, not unilateral disarmament. And one of the reasons why defence is an issue that should be used strongly by Labour in Scotland is Scotland contributes a lot of soldiers, a lot of reservists to the army. Scotland's got a long martial tradition of which the Edinburgh tattoo in the festival is one face of it, but people in Scotland are very proud of the military service uh, today and in the past of Scotland. So there are ways in which Labour can define the kind of the kind of patri the kind of patriotic position uh, uh, about the UK, which was the you know was something that Corbyn could never argue for, because he doesn't love our country. Keir Starmer clearly loves our country, and he's he you know he's the first leader of the Labour Party really. He's grown up with the with the settlement of devolution being a fixed part of the world in which he operates. Um, so I think you have strengths you can draw on, um, and they, they should be used properly. Um, and at some stage, politics as normal is going to come back, not just post-coronavirus, but also post-independence. I mean, just a simple point, the coronavirus has shown up two huge things about Scotland, which is that when there's a crisis, the resources of the UK come behind. At the time of the global financial crisis, had Scotland been independent, it couldn't have recapitalised the banks. Uh, it, it could not stand behind the banks and financial uh, services uh, which were hit by the global financial crisis um, over a decade ago. It could not have stood behind, Scotland itself could not have stood behind the nation going through the economic uh, consequences of the lockdown that has been bankrolled by the UK government. Um, this, the increase in the in the in UK debt w w will be, you know, an independent Scotland would have to take its fair share of that. Um, the the crash in the oil price, Alex Salmon's case for independence was based on oil trading at $110 a barrel. So that all of those issues, the practical issues. Uh, around the economics, uh, around could Scotland afford to be independent? Of course, it could stand alone, but it could not actually afford to take it. Well, on the last figures in Scotland, were a 10% cut in GDP uh, by going independent. What's likely to look more like a 15 to 20% cut in GDP 
when we look at the numbers from from the coronavirus and the the post-COVID period. And so um, there are plenty of ways to 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 get back and get relevant. But in the end, what gets you back in the game in politics is your leader. You know, just as Keir Starmer has got the UK Labour Party back in the game, not just because he's not Jeremy Corbyn, but because he actually has, you know, he already at PMQs, he's been showing what his personality and his approach and practice can bring to bear. You've got that. In Scotland, you've got um, a man called Richard Leonard, and he has no identity. I mean, if he called, if he called into a um, a radio uh, a radio a radio phone in about politics in Scotland, he'd have to introduce himself and explain who he was. He has got no cut through at all, um, to the point that, that some wits on Twitter call him Leonard Richard, because who knows the difference between Richard Leonard and Leonard Richard? You need the character and the you can you know. In this, in this sense, in this sense only, British politics is like presidential politics, which is you need the machinery, you need the ideas, you need the infrastructure, you need the the, 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 the arms and legs on the ground, but in the end you need somebody to be put in the centre to be the face of your party, the face of the change, the face of the campaign. Um, and you've got to be somebody who people can identify. You know, Scotland is a first-name politics country. It's Nicola. It's Alec. Um, it was Donald. Um, and so you have to uh, you have to get yourself the person as well as everything else. And that, in the end, is the most important thing about political parties: is that they they should be, and at the best are, machines for drawing into them the best talent, which they can then shape and move up. Uh, move up the ladder, uh, and that is where we start our conversation, which is that for uh, for decades the Labour Party has been able to produce talent to sit at the very top table, either as a leader, because you didn't mention it, but Tony Blair himself was born in Scotland and educated in Scotland, um, so he's a Scot too. I always like to claim him as uh, as one of the great tra- traditional Scottish Labour leaders, uh, but also you know senior figures like Willie Ross. Uh, who did so much for the framework of um, industrial policy for Scotland, figures like uh, the late Robin Cook, figures like uh, one of my former bosses, Des Brown, uh, who's a a great defence minister. So we have, uh, you have to start producing um, the talent coming in at the bottom, and that, I think, is uh, a problem for when you're down to to one seat. You you should be, you're losing some generations of talent. Uh, But... um, Politics is not a wheel that necessarily moves, but but it is a wheel of fortune, and it will it will move on. Well, in our beginning is our end. Uh, we'll have to let the wheel turn full circle there. Uh, John McTurnan, thank you very much for dissecting the role of Scottish Labour in the Labour Party and the Labour Party in Scotland. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.